Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Our uh, third bright idea today is Chrissy Philalathis, and I have pronounced that correctly. I did have lessons earlier today. Um, Chrissy is Head of Digital Strategy and Marketing and the Chief Digital Officer for RED, which I'm sure many of you know. She was a founding member of eSpotting, the company that pioneered search marketing in Europe um, and was valued eventually at $200 million when it later merged with Find What. Um, Chrissy joined RED, which was created by Bono and Bobby Shriver to engage business and consumer power to help eliminate AIDS in Africa in 2009. Um, to date, RED has raised $170 million and has helped 7.5 million people um, through global fund finance grants that RED supports. Chrissy. So this month, AIDS turns 30. It's been 30 years since the first diagnosis of AIDS in the U.S., and today 33 million people are living with HIV around the world, and 25 million people have unfortunately already passed away from this disease. Of those 33 million people living with HIV, only 6 million have access to the life-saving medicine that's needed. And according to the World Health Organization, AIDS kills more women between the ages of 15 to 44 around the world than cancer or heart disease, which is a pretty shocking fact. But we're here at names, not numbers, so let's talk about the names, and actually just one number, 2015. This is Doris who's HIV positive, and this is Michael, her son, who was born without HIV. And that's because with access to treatment, it is possible to stop the transmission of HIV from mother to child. Medicine that can be administered during labor can reduce the risk of, mothers, of a mother transmitting the virus to her child from 40% to less than 1%. And last year, some incredible news was actually announced. And that is that with increased levels of funding and support, we can virtually eliminate the transmission of HIV from mother to child by 2015. Today, just over half of all pregnant women who need the treatment receive it. By 2015, which is just four years away, the goal is to reach 90% of women. So this presentation, or Bright Idea, is entitled Red in 140 Characters. And that's because I'm the Chief Digital Officer at RED and therefore have trained my brain to, to truncate sentences. And today I'll be sharing with you RED's goal in 140 characters, our model in 140 characters, and our digital strategy in 140 characters. So first up, RED's goal. To help make the possibility of an AIDS-free generation born in 2050 a reality. Now, our goal may only take, have taken 80 characters to write, but it is a goal that will not be achieved by RED alone. RED is just one of the organizations, alongside a number of others, including the Global Fund, One, Chai, and PEPFAR, that is working towards this goal. The role RED plays in this is to facilitate consumer and private sector participation. RED partners with some of the world's most iconic companies, such as Nike, Starbucks, Apple, Converse, Shazam, to create Product Red items. And when people choose to buy Product Red, for example, 
the Apple Red iPod Nano, which costs exactly the same as the other Nanos, Apple gives $10 to help fight AIDS. So it's consumer choice that triggers the contribution the brand makes towards the cause. And Red Partners typically contribute up to 50% of profits from the sale of product Red items to the Global Fund. So in less than 140 characters, the Red model is bringing consumers and brands together to help fight AIDS. And since Bono and Bobby Shriver launched Red in 2006, Red has generated more than $117 million for the Global Fund, which is the recipient of Red monies. And today, Red is the largest private sector contributor to the Global Fund. Now, 100% of that money goes directly to work on the ground in Africa. Neither Red nor the Global Fund take any overhead. And Global Fund programs that Red supports have impacted over 7 million lives. Such as Motsalisi, who, with the help of two antiretroviral pills that cost us 40 cents a day, has undergone a remarkable transformation in just 90 days. And this transformation is, is incredible. It's called the Lazarus Effect. So one of my tasks at RED is to try and turn our, our 2.8 million strong digital audience from just a number to using social media to create real change. So I'd like to leave you with RED's digital strategy in 140 characters. And this time we have used all the characters. Participation, not promotion. Dialogue, not monologue. Empowering, not excluding. Inspiring, not forcing. Innovating, not following. It's this approach that guides how we interact with our social media audience. We see each and every one as a name, not a number. A very important name that can help the possibility of an AIDS-free generation born in 20, 2015 become a reality. Thank you. Right, I'm just going to um, ask a few questions of um, each of the panel and then I think one or two questions of them collectively before I open it up to the audience um, for questions. I, would, I have been asked to remind you that um, this is going to be a podcast, so any remarks, bear that in mind for any remarks you might want to make. Um, my first question actually is for Pat. Um, listening to the stories that you told, the amazing stories of the millions of women, um, and both in old and, and new media, but really using new technology and separately using old media. I'm just wondering um, about the possibilities of bringing all that influence to bear, actually, on the old media companies. And it, when, when you were speaking, it struck me, reminded me, and I don't know how many people in the audience remember the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. Um, for those of you who, who may remember, for those of you who don't remember, um, basically the, the kind of endless um, stalemate in the Northern Ireland peace process, and eventually it was the women or at least a great big influence was the women who said, we've had enough, we're tired of all our children being killed. Across the sectarian divide, um, the women got together and said, this is enough, we've had enough, we're going, we're taking this to all the politicians. And the media actually at that point came in and covered these women's outrage. And they really did make a big change and have a big influence. And I'm wondering, Pat, really how your story is and how that might, that might come together and if you're, if you're feeling positive, hopeful. Any examples of that? I, I'm smiling, Janet, because I was just on the phone this morning with women in Northern Ireland. No. It's so amazing <laughs> that you're saying this to me. <clears throat> because I was one of those uh, journalists who was there uh, in the uh, late, um, in the mid to late 80s during the Troubles 
to document exactly that story. And what it, I, you're completely right in that it was the women of Northern Ireland from both sides who began to communicate with each other surreptitiously, privately, and, it, and with great danger to themselves and family, and then began to meet secretly and privately, and they formed the coalitions that ended the conflict. The exact same thing happened uh, in Israel and what was then the occupied territories, where the women again broke the law, got together, negotiated their own peace settlement, regrettably did not bring uh, peace to that region. And in El Salvador, the same thing with a the conflict there, where women on the front lines used again the media that was available yeah. to them, which was often one-to-one -one, uh, communication, uh, to, to get past their differences. So in, in the many places in the world today, and I just think particularly of Congo because I've spent so much time there recently, that if that conflict ever ends, it will be, I believe, because media in all of its forms has begun to hold not only the Congolese government but all of the other governments who are intertwined in that conflict to a different accountability standard. But more significantly, perhaps, it has, it has made more of us in the Western world aware of what's going on there. And it took such bravery for these rape victims to begin to come forward and literally record their stories. Yeah. But if they don't do that and share them with one another, sometimes they can't do it face to face. They literally do prefer doing it through messaging or on their Facebook pages that have been set up for some of them are in private community centers. That will be the testimony that ultimately will hold uh, the people accountable for this violence. Well, I hope old media steps up as well, is what I can say. Um, Aditya, um, I actually just have a slightly cheeky question for you, which is what do you think Gandhi would have made of the technological development in India today and the distribution of wealth, how the, how the wealth is being distributed um, around that, that as a result of that revolution. Yeah, well, we're all glad that he wasn't. He didn't live to see much of that. Um, he didn't live to see no. either Nehruvian India or Manmohan Singh's India. Um, what do you think, think he would have you know, made Notwithstanding it? his status as the father of the nation upon martyrdom, etc., he represents just a dimension or, or one dimension, and that too, uh, one that, rep uh, that came to a particular kind of collective consciousness because of his genius, but yeah. not necessarily um, you know, a, a continuous reality or a continuous um, presence within India. So you talked of him when we were speaking before of a, as a designer, and I just wondered about, you know, given how far things have come and how they've expanded, and um, do you think he would, have, he would have played an active part, or do you think... Um, so there are many things that you know, we're beholden to him for. Uh, the preservation mm -hmm. of India's handicraft industries, you know, a place called Fab India, which is kind of like India's Mari Mecco or a kind of national uh, textile and, and accessories store. Um, so, so there are... The Khadi brand is nurtured by, yeah. um, by the government of India. Um, so these are kind of icons and, in a way, elements of Gandhi's legacy. But if you look at the operations of India's state, the logic relevant. of India's industry, that's not... Uh, I, I wanted to mention another thing, though, that came to me later on. Um, Tata Salt is India's largest salt manufacturer and producer. Right? So, in a way, even Tata Salt is 
we hold it to Gandhi's salt march. Uh, the, the branding and uh, uh, professionalization of salt manufacturing. Um, and Chrissy, I want to know, really, uh, uh, it's intriguing, and you've got all these brands to sign up, and they're all major brands, and they're all, you know, multinational corporations who have to make kind of huge, huge profits. What's in it for them? Well, the, when Red was set up, it was to provide a sustainable and scalable flow of money to the global fund, and it was felt the way to do that was to actually align with businesses and create a situation where it was a win for businesses, a win for consumers, because there's price parity. So it's to provide this win situation for all. So it is a win for businesses, it is a win for consumers, because you know the choice they're making, they're getting a great product and it's doing good in the world. And ultimately it's a win for, for, um, for those that, that are living with HIV and AIDS in Africa. Presumably your stakeholders, effectively, are the members of the public who contribute and... and um you know, who come together, the individuals in many masses who actually come together to raise all this money. How do you account to them? How do you report sure. back to them and ensure that they keep committed sure. to you? Well, I'd actually say that our ultimate stakeholders are those living with HIV because ultimately that's where, you know, even if you're looking at it from pure economic terms, that's where the money's going to. Um, but in terms of consumer participation, you know, what we, what we hope is by partnering with the, with the world's most iconic products and offering a diverse product range, when somebody buys one red product, that they'll be, they, they will then want to purchase other red products. So our task is to keep finding many different ways that people can be red. <laughs> okay. Um, bizarrely, if you look, you know, just at the titles of, of each of the um, bright ideas, um, they're so disparate, but actually what comes through in all of them is the, is the collective influence, I suppose, um, that masses of individuals can have in the case of Tugluk um, saying, sorry, that's not going to work, even though his ideas seemingly were fantastic. Um, you know, the women in India and the, the people raising money from, from AIDS. But what I'm wondering, um, all of this is happening, and it's all happening to come and influence pe people in positions of power, but ultimately, where is there a bit of a tension between you know, the politicians making the decisions um, and the masses of people? Or even if we're looking now at foundations, if we're looking at um, you know, funds, if we're looking at people like Buffett and Gates and Bono, um, who have all, each in their own ways, made a ton of money. And actually, now that they've made a ton of money, they're in the position that governments perhaps used to be in to say, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, let's bring the masses in to help us support our goals. How, how do we, and is there an opportunity, and is this leading us to, um, with social media, the opportunity to say, actually, maybe it's time that the masses of individuals um, can set the goals. Is there really, you know, is this actually really changing things, or is it just different people controlling? Um, sorry, this is going to be really clumsy, but <laughs> this reflects my preliminary thinking on this. But that, you know, crowdsourcing of innovation for instance, is something that a lot of our clients are trying to do. Uh, sorry, I'm going to take this away from me. <laughs> okay. We have a TV wow. producer in the audience. Yes. That's, okay, <laughs> thank you Very much. <laughs> Cheers. Um, so there is an idea out there that one can crowdsource a, a bunch of bright ideas, for instance, and that that can take the place of a research and uh, design function within an organization or that uh, one can have, you know, headless revolutions and 
while we're trying to understand exactly what's, what's going on there, that can maybe work spontaneously for a while, it seems to me that there is the need for leadership and that the nature of that leadership is one which, is, uh, which maybe understands how social media works and can be relatively light, nimble, and uh, reflexive and, and reacting to um, the kinds of trends and uh, directions that, that, the, that, that the crowd is maybe trending. All of the changes that you referenced, Janet, seem to me to be based in the fundamental power shift um, that has happened in media in the last 10 years and that, you know, the, the power and control of what we see, how we see it, and when we see it has shifted from the companies to the consumers. So that, that's a fundamental shift that will change everything about the way we consume information and the way that we behave as individuals as well as collectively. Um, and then that leads to a different kind of accountability yeah. as well. It, it's held at, a, at an entirely different level. And is that, do, do you see that um, as being at a completely different pace in the um, more developed countries as opposed to the less developed countries? Well, yes, of course, because there is less connectivity and less, uh, you know, less of the devices that give one the power of access and opportunity in the hands of people in the developing countries. But, of course, the, the mobile phone and, and the take-up of the mobile phone technology yeah. in India and other places like that are so transformative. And, in fact, way ahead in some other uh, countries in, in the use for social causes, um, that we may in, just the, in the West, everything. yes, yeah. right. They're yeah. leapfrogging yeah. in many cases. And just to add to that, the importance of mobile technology, especially in the developing world. I mean, the mobile phone is being used in such innovative ways where you are actually bypassing certain industries and infrastructures. And I think one of the best examples of that is a company called M-Pesa that is basically using mobile phone technology to bypass the need for banks and to allow for money transfers. So you could have um, somebody in one village and they go to the Mpesa agent, there could be a local grocer's, and uh, they want to send money to, let's say, their sister who's in another village, and, th and that money is paid to that local agent who's an Mpesa agent, a text message is then sent, and then that person's sister can go to their local Mpesa agent in their community and pick up that money. So I think that the way that mobile technology is being used to affect social change and to affect actual development is phenomenal. I, I want to add one more thing to the other point you made, which is related, and that is the shift also of the control of money. Mm -hmm. And where we have, uh, particularly in the developing world, been dependent upon aid and dependent upon government aid in particular, you're right to note that so much of the money and so much of the funding is now coming from individuals with great wealth. And that, of course, is shifting the whole landscape of development. Again, putting control in different places. Yeah. Hopefully good places. Yes. Hopefully. Um, I think I'm being waved, but I think we might have time for just like one or two questions from the audience if we have any burning questions. Um, this is really more of a comment, I think, but... Um, Whereas what Pat said about power shifting to the uh, consumer is absolutely right, it's also absolutely wrong. And certainly there are um, corporations and extremely wealthy individuals who are doing an enormous amount of good in the world. However, 
there are far too few doing far too little. Um, and here we are in New York in this seat of wealth and power. And um, the United States, as are many other countries, are descending into third world status. And there are so many people, people like me, who have always tried to be one of the good guys, who give here and give there, and it's Amnesty International one, one day and the World Wildlife Federation another, whatever. Um, and many of us can no longer do that. We're tanked out. We have unemployed children. We have grandchildren who need new shoes every three months and new braces. And the power shift is not happening nearly far and fast enough. So that's, that's just a personal rant. Thank you. <laughs> we like ranters, actually. <laughs> it's individuality. Um, any other rants? This is um, for Pat um, and for kind of both of you, too. I was wondering if you think there's a drawback to the anonymity that comes when women share their stories um, through SMS or through, you know, email. It's, on the one hand, welcoming because they have a freedom. On the other hand, you do lose a human connectivity. Um, and I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of talk about how the social fabric has been lost a little bit as people share their stories in such an anonymous way. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. On a very personal level, I spent a lot of time trying to get my children to talk to me over dinner so that we might have a one-on-one -on -one conversation instead of the conversation they're having with someone on Facebook or Twitter. And, and I do think that there's a danger to that, to starting to live in a world in which you can assume another identity, as we discussed earlier, and, and that's valuable to the women who need to assume a genderless uh, identity for, for their own you know, personal safety. But on the other hand, in situations where the political pressures are so intense and where it's impossible to go public uh, with the story of violence or conflict, the anonymity of being able to share your story through social media or whatever has, has given not only great freedom, but I, as I said earlier, I think will provide really critical testimony to what has happened. Um, but there's no question that we, I think in particular the generation that's come up with social media has, are not as aware as I personally would like them to be sometime of the dangers that exist in the kind of uh, sharing that you may think is anonymous but you know, may not perhaps be. Some but, recent examples. <laughs> yes, as some recent examples show, absolutely. <laughs> on but then on the other <laughs> hand, don't you like holding people like that accountable? No personal <laughs> references intended. <laughs> any, um, any resemblance to people living or dead was purely accidental. With funny names. <laughs> okay, um, it just remains for me to thank the panel. Thanks very much.